Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember... This is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Right, folks, what are we doing today? Well, we are going to be reverting to a part of the show, a format in the show, that we've been neglecting somewhat of late. And so... I'm really glad we're returning to it. Yes, we're going to be talking to an author about their Beatle book. The last one we did, I believe, was Jan Mitchell and her story about how she ran away to England to meet the Beatles in her book, Ticket to Ride. And today, we are going to be keeping on the theme of women and femininity on this show, as I have the extreme pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett about her book, A Women's History of the Beatles. Now, I'd like to think of myself as in touch with my feminine side. Many children at school were quick to remind me so. But yeah, it's a side of Beatledom that has definitely not had the full representation. But as we all know, in recent years, that has certainly started to change. And there are now far more Beatle works and Beatle books, Beatle projects, even Beatle films, and podcasts being produced and driven by women. This, of course, is not only excellent, but it's also important for us to get the full 360 perspective on the Beatles. And on this show, I've always tried to create more of a balance. Yes, definitely in the early days, it was a bit of a sausage fest here at Paul or Nothing. But as the years have gone on, I've definitely tried to address my own balance somewhat, and I'm glad that we now have a book that is directly just a woman's history of the Beatles. It's direct, it's to the point, and it covers an incredible gamut of topics, all of which I will touch on in my introduction shortly. Just want to say I had an absolutely wonderful time talking with Christine, or Dr. Feldman Barrett, should I say. But yeah, Originally, it was going to be like a quick 60-minute chit-chat, and it ended up going well over two hours, minus editing. And she was so open and thoughtful and honest, and she took the time to answer all of my questions thoroughly. And we even got to do our own classic Paul or Nothing digressions and borderline unrelated chit-chattery. It was all in very good fun. But most importantly, folks, I feel like I actually learned a lot. Whenever I do a book review on this show, I don't like to prepare for too long. Basically, I like to give myself a week to read the book and come up with all of my questions. Typically, I write my questions as I am reading the book. And so a lot of the time, it does end up being quite chronological, at least in the early stage. I do do try and mix it up. But As I've confessed on the show before, especially during my conversations with Joe Wisby, I'm a terrible reader. I'm not someone who is very passionate about reading anything that, about reading anything beyond what I need to research the show. I'm better in small chunks and small doses. 
But I really did enjoy this book. It was very illuminating. It was very educational and entertaining. But most importantly, folks, it said things that had not been written about the Beatles before. And therefore, its importance cannot be understated because, you know, so many times these days with Beatle text, you just read the same information over and over again. But with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett's book, A Women's History of the Beatles, there is something new to learn for everyone, man or woman. So yeah, let's not dilly-dally anymore. I want to get right to this conversation. It's a real good one. I know you'll enjoy it. So let's just crack on right away with the housekeeping. Right. Do we have any news here today, today here? No, we do not. So we will go on to the emails. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com. Whether you just want to say hi, talk about an episode past, talk about an episode in the future, correct any mistakes I've made, or even introduce me to your own Paul McCartney stories, facts or factoids. I want to hear it all. I love reading correspondence out here on the show, as you know. Sadly, though, just like our news, we have no emails either. So we'll crack on right with the plugs. Follow us on our Twitter page for daily updates at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul all of his written content, go and check out the blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the only place where you can check out new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, the latest episode of which is my fantastic conversation with TJ from the Untitled Beatles Podcast. They actually gave me a massive shout-out on their latest episode. Make sure you go and watch that as soon as possible. I am really proud of it. Many thanks to TJ again for coming on the show. It really was a fun one, even if we barely stuck to the regular format or topic of the show. But hey, we both knew that going in, and you should too. Finally, if you want to help out the show, finally, if you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review on whatever platform you are using, whether that is a like, a thumbs up, a little tick, a certain number of stars, a nice comment, or even a retweet. Yes, if you can always share us with your friends and family and other Beatles fans. Maybe you're part of a Beatles or Paul McCartney Facebook group and you could post an episode or two there on my behalf. That would always be most appreciated. Help us in the algorithms, help us in our exposure to other fans and expand the family. Speaking of the Paul or Nothing family, if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to help see the show grow and allow me to purchase items for review or get certain guests on, get certain equipment, help pay with the monthly podcasting bills, or maybe you just want to say thanks for all the hard work that I do on the show by throwing a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Of course, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it is not just a gimme. You do get all of your benefits you get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing you get instant access to episodes of Macca in your attic you also get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed uh, like the Macca in your attic feed it sometimes comes weeks in advance though Dr Christine Thelman Barrett did not want her image to be put out there like other people do so unfortunately that wasn't possible this time but hey any other time that I record a video on Zoom, it goes straight up on the Patreon straight away. 
You also get access to all the scripts I use for the show, lost episodes or deleted or bonus episodes of Paul or Nothing that will never be released to the public. And you also get the weekly vlog series. Last week, I did all of my non-McCartney, non-Beatles vinyl collection. And I reckon this week, I might even talk about Beatle books for a change. Now, there's a bit of a book theme going on here, folks. But yeah, you get all of that and the satisfaction of knowing that you are giving to one of the only true podcasts that care about you out there. No, of course, I'm kidding. If you like the show, if you like what I do here and you want to give back, then please do not hesitate in joining our wonderful Patreon family. People including Boz76, Jeff H, David Stiberski, Mitzi Carter, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, Matt Phillips, and of course, Mr. Percy Thrillington. Anyway, folks, now that that is all out of the way, it is time that we spoke about some whammen here on the show for a change. So sit back, relax, check your unbridled patriarchy at the door, and listen to my wonderful conversation with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett. Take it away, me. Right, everyone, we are now in the live portion of the show, and boy, oh boy, am I excited, as once again, we have a proper interview with an author, no less. This week, folks, we are going to be looking at a perspective of the Beatles fandom that I'd like to think I'm exploring more on this podcast, and that is the perspective of women. In fact, this month, uh, the month we are recording this episode, I looked at my YouTube analytics, and apparently... 70% 70% of my audience has been women, so I was I was very, very happy with that. And uh, yeah, enough of my self-congratulations. Uh, I'm kindly joined by Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, whose book, A Women's History of the Beatles, which is a look into every female-related topic in regards to the Beatles. It is surely to spark quite the debate and settle a few scores and write a few wrongs. It is a fantastic read. I've really been immersed into it. As you all know, folks, it takes me a good while to actually start and finish a book. But, you know, like the little engine that could, I always get through it in the end. And it covers everything from women the Beatles knew, people who they were influenced by, wives, girlfriends, the many generations of fans that were spawned in their wake, as well as musicians, artists, entrepreneurs, and intellectuals who were inspired by their works. It is such a well-researched book. I was quite agog by how many sources were in it. No pictures either. Like, it's actually a proper academic text, folks. It certainly has been inflaming my imagination and enlightened me for the past couple of weeks now, and we have a lot to go through. So with that in mind, everyone, please welcome to the show, author and Beatles scholar, Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett. Christine, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Sam. It's great to connect with you and talk about the book. Awesome. The pleasure is all mine. And normally, this is where I would get you to rattle off some trivialities about your favourite Beatles song and which one, and we, you know, who's the cutest George or, or Ringo? You know, we're not going to be doing that. We're going to go straight into the light-hearted interrogation segment of the show because there is a lot to cover in your book. I mean, my questions 
only really cover, say, the first half, because I don't want to particularly spoil the entire text. And it was getting to the point whereby I'd read the whole thing, and then in my reread, I start writing the questions, and I'm on eight pages, and I'm only on, like, chapter two. So I didn't... (laughs) You know, you've got a life. My audience has a life. We don't want to be here for seven hours, even though I really easily could have. I mean, we could just do an hour and a half on wives and girlfriends very, very easily. But let's dive right in. Are we in or entering a golden age of academic Beatles texts that are being written by more than just middle-aged white men who used to work for Q magazine? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope so. No, truly, I think I think that's right. For one thing, you have a lot more people of the younger generations writing about the Beatles. So definitely people in my generation, Gen X, and millennials are starting to contribute as well. And before long, Gen Z kids will be right in there as well, giving voice to their analysis of Beatles history and the Beatles story. But yeah, the the short answer is yes. And there are definitely, and I rattle off some of the names. I interviewed some of the women who are doing this. Uh, So there are women writing about Beatles topics. Not necessarily all of them are looking at gender or, you know, women's experiences. But there's certainly women out there. And... um, Yeah, I think it's diversifying a lot more. So I think we're just entering that phase. I think there's going to be a whole host more scholarship that, for instance, comes out of the global south. You know, there might be South American or African scholars who start talking about what the Beatles meant in the countries there. That's certainly something that I haven't really seen yet. And, you know... Indigenous people, people of color, black authors, you know, I think that's all going to be coming to the fore. There is the queer history of the Beatles. That's what well, I want to know. That, that's that, that's going to be an amazing book when it comes out. I cannot wait for that. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, yeah, a queer history of the Beatles. I think that definitely will be written. Who knows when and where exactly? But I think there are so many topics that really actually could be explored more or haven't really been explored at all. So I'll look forward to these publications whenever they may come out. But it's nice to see people from different backgrounds and from different perspectives starting to think about how they can approach such a massive topic. I mean, talk about one of the the most talked about topics of the 20th and now 21st century, it's, I think, the legacy of the Beatles story and their impact is just going to keep going on and on. I mean, I know some historians have argued the opposite point, saying, oh, nobody's going to be talking about the Beatles in 100 or 200 years. But mm-hmm. I beg to differ. I think the Beatles will be remembered the way we remember Mozart, the way we remember Beethoven, mm-hmm. Um all the sort of key composers from the past. I think people will be talking and writing about the Beatles and studying them for a long, long time. 
there's that great shot in the beat uh, in the Simpsons when they cut to like a hundred years in the future and there is a cathedral to John Paul, George, and Ringo. <laughs> that's 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 how I hope it's going to be. Um, I just wanted to say I, I thought it was very honest and forthright of you in in the book to say that you weren't covering every single perspective that 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 you could. It was a largely you know UK American Australian based perspective, and I just thought that. It, 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 it was nice that you were upfront with that, and you you you, mm. you, 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 you even touched on some some of those other uh, other groups that we talked about. I'd never even seen that picture of the uh, two female Beatles fans kissing at that concert in '64 before. You mentioned that, and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know about that, and it, and it literally sent my mind reeling. There were so many topics that I thought of for uh, future content on this show, but you know what? Let's talk about how we got to here today today here um when did, <laughs> when did the transition from the female to male dominated fandom start was it right after Beatlemania died down was it after they stopped singing about love songs and, and you know started talking about burning down Norwegian wooden houses was it after the band's breakup was it the launch of the 70s uh, hard-hitting magazine culture when when, when did this happen mm. Well, a lot of people who have broached the topic, and this was certainly something I picked up on doing the research, is that there seems to be a shift right around the time of Sgt. Pepper. Even though some music critics had given um, the Beatles a lot of credit for being creative songwriters, there's that famous William Mann piece that comes out in 19, I think, it must have been late 1963. I can't quite remember, but he's he's the one who's talking about the Aeolian cadences and all of that. You know that oh, the Beatles songs, their compositions are a bit reminiscent of Mahler, and he's saying mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. But you have Beatlemania, then the Beatles stop touring, then you have Sgt. Pepper come out uh, in '67, and also you see the birth of rock music journalism, mm -hmm. as we've known it for a long time, sort of the classic rock music journalism with the launch of things like Rolling Stone magazine. And this, this new era seems to come about where the Beatles, who had always been at the center of popular music culture throughout the 60s to that point, right, seen as the leaders of music culture or popular music culture, youth culture, et cetera, and John Lennon, I think it's a picture of him in How I Won the War is on the cover of the first Rolling Stone. Certainly the Beatles become the basis for that rock journalism movement. And mm -hmm. so they are viewed as artists, certainly as geniuses, um, but they are quote unquote taken more seriously in these sort of critical circles. And because of that, more men are in the mix in terms of giving their voices to the Beatles story and lifting the Beatles up even more. One point I'd like to make is obviously there were some female rock journalists at that time, but it was dominated mainly by male journalists. But the other thing I want to underscore is the fact that those young screaming fans did not just disappear. I mean, mm -hmm. some of them did. Some of them did, sure. For some, it was a little bit of a, a fad and 
a phase they were going through. But a lot of those initial adolescent girls who were Beatle maniacs stayed the course and had the whole journey with the Beatles all the way through to the very end. And many of those women continue to be fans. And some of those women I interviewed for the book, right? So women were always there. It wasn't as if they simply disappeared once rock journalism started taking the Beatles seriously or more seriously. Those young women had always taken the Beatles seriously and they continue to do so. But there is that shift. And then I think as we get into the 70s, post Beatles breakup, obviously, rock music in general, and I'm not the only one who's pointed this out. I obviously reference previous scholars who have talked about this, but there's this kind of so-called masculinization of rock. In the 60s, rock and pop are kind of intermeshed for most of the decade. Mm -hmm. And so you can be a Beatles fan and also like the Dave Clark Five and Dusty Springfield, but Mm -hmm. you can also be listening to the kinks, you know, with all the reverb and sort of the, you know, what they say is the birth of heavy metal sounds through things Mm -hmm. like You've Really Got Me and the early kinks music, right? And um, by the time we get to 1970 and the early 70s, we certainly have cool gender bending stuff with glam rock and Mark Bolin and David Bowie and everything. But you also have sort of those arena rock bands and Led Zeppelin epitomizes Mm -hmm. that where it's just Mm -hmm. really, you know, going for that more aggressive, blokey kind of rock Mm -hmm. vibe. And I talk about that when I talk about Beatles fans in the 70s and how girls were kind of seen as either only liking teen idols like Mm -hmm. David Cassidy and the Osmonds and things like that, or the Bay City Rollers, right? Roller mania. Uh, Or or they were seen as these really hard, tough girls who were a little bit quote unquote scary, who listened to hard rock and Led Zeppelin and all that. And I thought being a Beatles fan was so in between those two places, it was so interesting because it was a place where young women, teenage girls and adolescent girls found this kind of middle ground that had Mm -hmm. all those elements that you saw in the 60s that the Beatles really epitomized in terms of the full spectrum of different sounds. You know, you could have soft ballads and songs with orchestration And then you could have rave ups and, you know, helter skelter and and things like that. But yeah, I I know this is a bit of a long winded answer. That's sort of, that's my wheelhouse, isn't it? In some ways, Um, I can be a bit long winded. But going back to your original question, it's just that notion that the Beatles were always their own animal. They always were unique and literally a band apart from things that were going on around them. And so even though rock became this more masculinist enterprise in the 70s, and then with punk and, you know, post-punk, that changes again, where where, um, it's not so blokey, it's not like this fake macho kind of pose. Um, But the Beatles remain this kind of unique rock space they create a unique rock space that is welcoming to both young men and young women but yeah there is that point where things seem to shift and at least the way the Beatles are talked about and written about it really becomes also very monopolized by 
those male rock journalists, essentially. What um, has previously been called on this podcast the uh, the the jean jacket generation, which I think is a wonderful yeah. <laughs> phrase phrase for it. I'd like to think that there must have been a, a real golden age, maybe between like sixty six and sixty eight, maybe where it was for everyone. Um, you know, because nothing's completely black and black and white, of course. And I'm sure most people in the day probably wouldn't even have noticed any sort of social shift like that it's something that you can only really notice when looking back in the past but let's get down to brass tacks and talk about the way men and women enjoy fandoms because in my own experience men seem to prefer a much more combative competitive knowledge in fandom maybe like trying to who is the bigger fan? Who likes this more? Do you know this song? I know a bit of trivia about that song. What chords are in the song? I know what chords are in this song. So do you think that there is some perception from modern male majority Beatles fan base towards the female fans in the way that maybe they perceive men and women having different, not preferences, but do you think certain people perceive that men and women enjoy the Beatles differently, I guess would would be the way to put it. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I don't want to essentialize all men and all women Mm -hmm. looking at the Beatles and enjoying the Beatles in one way. But I think you're right. I mean, you're talking to an academic where I'm in the business of people trying to outknowledge each other, if you will. I mean, obviously, it's also very collegial, but um, there is that aspect of, you know, who is more knowledgeable about Mm -hmm. this topic. And in the Beatles world, you bet some of that is going on, you know, where people are trying to, um, and I, and I sometimes, you know, sometimes that could be more apparent when guys are talking together, but something I thought was really interesting that came up in one of the interviews that I had, one of the women talked about how when she was a teenager that she would be at parties where she would end up talking with mostly guys, but kind of a mixed group of young people about music. And she said she felt so thrilled knowing that sometimes she knew more about the Beatles, like more about Beatles history and all the details than some of the guys, because she felt in some respects that she wasn't supposed to know more, you know, that the guys thought, oh, she's she's a girl, she's not going to really know all the details of Beatles history. And so it was a bit of a gotcha moment where she, (laughs) she really did show herself to be very knowledgeable, you know, no, I'm just, and I, and I think maybe that's part of what you're getting at. And this was certainly something I wanted to discuss in the book is that there is unfortunately this notion, and this spills over into all areas of cultural life, I think, this idea that, and I think in chapter five in the book is where I really talk about it a lot, Mm -hmm. is this idea that even today, when polls are taken, when studies are done, and there are even a lot of just magazine and newspaper articles written about this topic, there's this notion that women inherently are not as expert as men. Mm-hmm. on pretty much any topic. So it's it's this kind of unfortunate circumstance that women Beatles fans find themselves in, and not only do they have to prove their knowledge 
um, in a space where, as you said, it can feel sometimes kind of competitive in terms mm -hmm. of how, oh, but I bet you don't know this B-side and what about that bootleg? And I bet you haven't seen that, right? Mm -hmm. um, that not only are women dealing with that, that is going on in a lot of different conversations about different topics, not just the Beatles, but there's that whole legacy of Beatlemania that made... Um, a lot of male, especially rock music fans, dismissive mm -hmm. of girls and young women's opinions or maybe questioning their level of knowledge about the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Because that hysterical, um, and I put this in quotes, you know, hysterical female fan of the Beatles is that go-to image that a lot of people have in their minds. And that's why it was important to me to say, look, first of all, if girls want to scream for the Beatles, great. You know, mm -hmm. that's their prerogative to do that. Why is everybody having such a hard time with this? <laughs> and then secondly, also, just because they're screaming, probably out of joy and excitement and, you know, all the energy they have about the Beatles and mm -hmm. all the feelings they have about the Beatles and being a fan, it doesn't mean that they can't still intellectualize the Beatles mm -hmm. or feel a sense of creativity that sparked because of being a Beatles fan. And those were the kinds of stories that I heard from women I interviewed and also from other primary and secondary sources. I was able to, to see that bigger picture of what being a Beatles fan during that period of Beatlemania could have and would have meant you know, mm -hmm. that it, it you can't just look at it so one dimensionally. So I guess going circling back to the original <laughs> question, I would say that um, it's not necessarily different. I think female Beatles fans could be just as competitive or they could be really focused in on musicological questions about the Beatles. They could go really deep into intellectualizing the Beatles, they're not only looking at sort of relational issues about the Beatles. I personally am interested in that relationship that people have with the Beatles music and the personalities. I like that dynamic. I would much rather look at those topics, which I did in the book, obviously. I would much rather do that than do a really intricate study of the songwriting, for instance, mm -hmm. because I am more interested in the sort of fan history and and the way that the Beatles resonate with people. Those, those issues for me as a sociologist and as a cultural historian, I find those much more compelling. But another woman who's a Beatles scholar may totally want to focus on the brass tacks of mm -hmm. their songwriting and, and things that supposedly, you know, the guys are more interested in. So I, I think there's really, um, it depends on the person, it depends on their interests. And so I don't think it's necessarily distinctly different between the two. Something that you point, pointed out, and it made me realize how little I've thought of this. And I like to think of myself as a modern liberal man. So, you know, <laughs> this, this, this might highlight how generations perhaps before me maybe have not thought about it even less. But it's the, it's the idea that, 
the media is completely controlled by men at this point, and they are not going to be doing the sound bites where women on the street go, yes, well, I rather like the arpeggios in uh, <laughs> on, on, on with the Beatles, but uh, I, I think the iambic pentameter of, of Harrison's writing is rather lugubrious. You know, they, they're just going to show... Just like George, because he's pretty. You know, that's the those right. are the those are the sound bites that get put right. in, in in the news. And I thought that was completely illuminated. I was like, oh yeah, it's just a narrative that's been cultivated. It, it um, you, you even mentioned the the idea that the phrase Beatlemania itself is a pretty problematic term term really like the, the idea that it's mania it, it it has certain pangs of like the victorian hysteria movement mm-hmm. um you know right because are you gonna sit here and have me say that i wasn't screaming like a shea stadium girl when i saw paul of course <laughs> i was you know, I I was hoping to faint and and be and and be carried out and be featured in the music video. I, you know, I I cried when he played yesterday and here today. I went mm. wow when he did live and let die. You know, all those emotions are pretty universal. I think maybe sub, like subconsciously, a lot of it just has to do with the fact that maybe men have a slightly lower registered scream. It's more of a yeah rather than. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, it might just be the way certain people hear screams. You know, you, you know, like in the way where you might hear some children having fun in in a park, and it sounds like they're being murdered. They're just screaming. I'm yes. like, oh my yeah. god! But they're actually having the time of their lives. You have to calm down. Like, okay, I can, I can go back to write to my write to my podcast notes. Um, something else that really resonated with me in your book, though, um, in the section double fantasies, second generation fans, was when you were talking about fans adopting their parents' tastes. And you mm-hmm. quote uh, a lady named Rebecca uh, Herbertson saying, usually it's the mum that is at home with the child that often gets to choose what music's on in the house. And so it's actually women that are perpetuating the fan base. And mm. that could not be more true in my case. My grandmother had all the early Beatles singles. She had them on this. I mean, my mum describes this machine that I don't think existed, but like, you know, it had, it had all the singles and it would play each one, one at, one at a time. And yes. that, that that turned my mom into a fan. That helped her connect with my dad, who was a fan. Um, you know, they both listened to Band on the Run on an eight track, whatever one of those is, in the, in the car <laughs> together. And you know, that went on to me being a little naked baby on the bearskin rug, listening to be, to Beatles songs as well. You know, I I totally empathise with that. It was it was it was very illuminating in 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 that sense. Let's let's talk about. Uh, the idea that maybe men might have a certain resistance to the notion that women like the Beatles in the sense that maybe maybe certain men just don't want to be seen being into the same music as girls. Did you think that could be an issue as well? Well, it's interesting. I remember when I was doing my research and I didn't extract that particular bit of text, but there was this second wave feminist who's one of her books, and her name is um, Shulamith Firestone. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I need to... <laughs> uh, there's so many. Uh, I'll just check it right now just to make sure I've got her name correct. I'm pretty sure Firestone is her last name. But she wrote something really interesting in one of her texts. I mean, a lot of her stuff is quite fascinating, but... Um, Yeah, she wrote a book that was published 
uh, for the first time in 1972 called The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution. Oh, sorry, I saw the reprint, which was from 72, but the book actually came out in 1970. And she has a passage where she talks about that sense of inherent distaste that even boys, you know, when kids are quite young, that boys just don't want to like what girls like, Mm -hmm. that they want to differentiate themselves completely. And there's this dismissiveness that that comes across um, even at a very young age. I mean, she's obviously um, a second wave feminist who's uh, critiquing, you know, the relationship between the sexes um, when that was first really coming to the fore and being mm-hmm. discussed quite openly in that way through books like hers and the others that were coming out around that time. So, you know, why that is exactly is still a, a question to be answered. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it? But I, I do think there is, and we see it still with groups today like BTS. I mean, I often see on on Twitter BTS fans saying things like, they did the same thing to the Beatles that they're doing to our beloved BTS, you know, just because girls really like this band, it's no reason to put the group down, you know? Mm. So that's something that continues on. And why exactly it happens I'm not sure. I mean, some other people might, um, you know, people who study feminism more or have read more of the texts and the recent texts than I have probably would have a more specific answer. I mean, some people might say, well, it's the patriarchy and, you know, this is just the way society is, is that even though women have a lot more freedoms in 2022 than we did in 1962, there are still ways in which our culture tends to put women down or limit women's possibilities. I mean, we're seeing all sorts of issues like that coming to the fore even now. So, I mean, you know... There is nothing going on in the States right now that is relating to this topic whatsoever. No, nothing. No, nothing. Nothing. It's it's all in the past. Well, this is why, you know, it's it's, um, quite interesting to think about these issues around women and the 1960s and the Beatles being, you know... Uh, the center of that decade Mm -hmm. and the Beatles also providing these examples of what it is to be a free and creative person and follow one's dreams and not feel restricted or feel like you have limits placed on you. Um, It's, it's interesting to talk about it because I think oftentimes, and I hear it from my students a lot too, there's this conception that people in the past or let's say the relationship between men and women in the past was always worse than today. Mm. I mean, I think there was sexism then, there's sexism now. The way it manifests is different. And were there forward-thinking men in the 60s? Yes, the Beatles were forward-thinking men in the 60s, you know? Mm. Um, And there are definitely progressive forward-thinking men now. So, I mean, I don't think it's always this straight line towards progress and everything's Mm -hmm. hunky-dory now and things in the past were always worse and, you know, awful. I think in every time period you can look at, you see 
progressive ideas and you see uh, regressive mm -hmm. <laughs> ideas as well. But again, going back to your question, I'm not sure why there continues to be this kind of dismissal of quote unquote music that girls like that somehow mm -hmm. it's a problem. Because of course we know with the Beatles story too, and we can even talk about contemporary bands and groups today where girls might be at the forefront of the fandom, but there are definitely guys who are following, who followed the Beatles mm -hmm. all the way through from the beginning. And, you know, for some of these performers now, same thing. Oh, I was down to 2% there. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to cut you short then. <laughs> I was really playing I thought, with fire. I thought, you looked, I thought you looked a little bit panicked. So, yeah. <laughs> And I thought, oh, no, am I really distressing Sam with what I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, just, just, just before we go back to uh, the topic, I'll, I'll cut this bit out. Um, speaking of second, uh, second wave feminism, of course, Jermaine Greer preferred the Rolling Stones to the Beatles. I was like, I knew she would. I knew she would. That's so Jermaine Greer. No way. <laughs> She's on. It's it it it's kind of cool that um, she's such a big celebrity here in the UK. She's always on like panel shows and comedy shows and stuff like that. Or, or like whenever there's a talking head needed in a program, she's yeah. she's there every time. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, um, definitely a public intellectual and has been since the late sixties, I think, yeah. or early seventies oh, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I will respond to what you just said in three, two. Um, being part of so many other subcultures, like I'm, I'm really into tabletop wargaming or stupid Japanese card games, I've, I've come across a wide variety of situations where certain people, typically straight, white, neurotypical men, talk about the idea of the right kind of fan and the proper mm. types of fans that you want uh, you know, to represent, I guess, you in your own fandom. And fortunately, in my nerdy little cabal, where we meet every Wednesday and Sunday, everyone's overjoyed when there's a girl there now. Not in a kind of pr predatory way, like, yes. Right, a, right. But just like, oh. Friendly for, way. Yeah, thank God we've Friendly. got a, a bit of a mix here, you know. Right. But... There is definitely, I mean, we've talked about a, a queer book on Beatles history, definitely a book on the uh, a neuro atypical a, a or a, a, a disabled Beatles fan's perspective mm -hmm. is something that could definitely be talked about as well. Um, just in terms of the dichotomy of men and women, uh, it, uh, probably a lot of it's cultural, you know, going back to that, you know, that famous experiment where you give young boys Barbies and girls action men or, mm -hmm. gun, or guns mm -hmm. as kids and they will like whatever you give them because that's what the the older gen generation do at least with the Beatles specifically in my again in my own experience I've I found them to be a lot more universal than say a band like Led Zeppelin mm -hmm. um you know um if uh, you know if we're ever jamming in my in in, in my friend's garage and I'm gonna, it's horrible it, it's normally one of the girlfriends um sadly in my friendship group we don't have many just single girls who aren't with anyone else but at least when that is happening Beatles songs are one of those genres where we will just instantly everyone knows the song everyone mm -hmm. knows the, everyone knows the chord the chord changes um so that so you know 
they are definitely a lot more universal in that sense. But um, you were, you were talking about forward forward thinking men, and let's and let's talk about the Beatles themselves because these are working class men born in post World War Two Northern England. Would it be best to call them? Uh, I believe you used the phrase pro-social or homosocial. Would that be better than calling them feminists or pre-feminists? Or um, more accurate? I think yeah. pro-social is the term I use when I talk about um, what I think they got from the women in their lives when they mm-hmm. were kids. So their mothers, their aunties, and having really strong female role models, I guess you could say, around them. And I link that, which I hadn't seen that done in another book. I mean, certainly books talk about their relationships with their mothers, go into detail in terms of, you know, the tragedy surrounding both Julia uh, Stanley Lennon and Mary McCartney and how their deaths impacted upon John and Paul. But I hadn't seen something that that really made a strong link for saying that perhaps those relationships, and again, I'm not a social psychologist, but I was reading texts that were from social psychologists that were making this link between those relationships between sons and their mothers and having what's called a pro-social kind of very empathetic attitude and way of connecting with other females in their lives. So I saw that link to the way that they interacted with their young female fans at the cavern and around Liverpool, that they were so friendly. And I don't think, I really don't think it was purely a mercenary thing at all, you know, that, that they thought, oh, here's our fan base, you know, we need to make sure you know, we keep them happy. I mean, a little bit of that is always going on if you're in a music scene and you're in a local band and you want to be friendly with everyone. And sometimes you actually become friends with some of your fans, not everyone, right? So there is that dynamic of, of wanting to keep your fans happy. But I do think that the interactions that I read, um, both from mainly from the fan perspective, obviously, it seemed very genuine to me. And of course, we have to remember that the Beatles that were playing the cavern had no idea what they would become Mm -hmm. just a few years later, right? So sure, they may have talked about going to the toppermost of the poppermost, but (laughs) whether they were really going to get there who knew, right? Who knew? And so I do think, you know, those early relationships did foster this real friendliness and kindness within them as people uh, that really came through to, you know, most of the people who interacted with them. And a lot of the girls talked about this too, you know, that genuinely they were quite friendly, even if, for instance, John Lennon could be a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit sharp yeah. sometimes. Well, like sharp, not, I mean, obviously sharp and smart, but he could be a little bit um, 
biting maybe yeah, yeah. What, what's the word I'm looking for a, what did a, you say a, a bit biting a bit uh, a bit biting right yeah. so there were those moments but as I say in that chapter you know even though people talk about the marketed Beatles for Beatlemania and that a hard day's night was marketing these personas of John Paul George and Ringo and they had these sort of stereotyped mm-hmm. qualities placed on each of them but those stereotypes and those marketed images were born out of real things and real qualities that each of them had, right? Mm-hmm. And you see the basis of, of those qualities and those interactions through the way that those teenage girls were interacting with them around Merseyside. Now, um, Again, that that section of the book where you were talking about the strong women in the Beatles' early lives, again, quite resonated with me because I remember in my early ignorance of like teen years finding out about feminism for the first time. I'd only ever been surrounded by my incredibly strong mother who is very high up in the NHS in the, in, in, in Birmingham here. She's like head, mm. pharma, head pharmaceutical technician for Sandbox City and Dudley Hospitals. Like incredible role, uh, something very hard to live up to. Uh, I, I, I had my very academic sister who might, like my mom always compared it. She, she, she said I was probably naturally a bit more smarter, but lazy, whereas my sister is incredibly studious and, now in well now we're both adults she's much further ahead in me in society people would say but and then i had incredible matriarchs in terms of both sets of grand grandmothers and, mm. I, and I remember thinking wow women aren't oppressed are they i'm i'm terrified of all these women in my life um, <laughs> <laughs> they're absolutely fearful um and then I guess perhaps maybe in a slightly more innocent way, the Beatles perhaps would have felt a sim- a similar thing because um, you don't really hear story. I mean, there are certain well, I think I think with all four of them uh, stories, especially in their later adult life, that get very problematic in, in terms of their relationships with women, particularly John. Mm-hmm. But but then even if you just go into things like infidelity and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, no one likes to think of Paul being unfaithful to Linda, but I'm a very cynical asshole in that, in that regard. Um, mm. And I'd like to think that they were perfect in that, in that regard, but there definitely has to be a certain managing of expectations perhaps in terms of their, mm-hmm. their, their, their in interactions with women at the time but even as Paul Muldoon and Paul points out in Paul McCartney the, the lyrics that came out last mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. so like 80% of their songs are either have a woman's name in the title or are about women um, and then and then with Paul particularly you've got this incredible triad of Eleanor Rigby mm-hmm. another day and um uh, daytime nighttime suffering which is one of the greatest mm-hmm. trilogies of the plight of women ever and you know mm. you, you, you'd think lyrically perhaps those songs are from like the 90s or the 2000s and right like, no he was actually perceptive enough maybe he wasn't perfect maybe he wasn't entirely consistent but at least he sh- it shows that at least Paul was mm very forward thinking at that at at that time at least some mm. some sometimes i mean ringo didn't sing women are the greatest he, he did sing i'm the greatest uh, but <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, and um, I mean, we can even take it one step further if we're talking about the problematic nature of it. The fact that John was so open about his misgivings with women, especially in a song like Getting Better, Mm-hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. that's, I mean, again, mm-hmm. I'm not a social psychologist either, but perhaps that, <laughs> uh, perhaps that's indicative of him wanting to be better, wanting to, you know, be, be the change he wants, he wants to see. And yes, think, yes. Yeah. And it's, I think you have to give Lennon a lot of credit for really being so self-reflexive and realizing that there were things in his life that he wanted to change and he was very open about a a lot of things I I think that's something I really like about quote-unquote the John songs I know we're talking about Paul here but (laughs) you know going back to songs like I'm a loser I don't want to spoil the party Um, but later something like Julia, there's just so much vulnerability that he seems to exude in that, in those sorts of songs that you can't help but feel for him as a person and and what he's going through at different points in his life. And, you know, he did, yeah, he just did a lot of thinking about himself in the world and the things that he liked about himself didn't like so much about himself um that awareness within all the Lennon McCartney songs I would say and Paul as you mentioned he's really great about you know taking that focus shining a light on women but John too you know I think of Norwegian Wood actually in the sense that that's a new kind of female figure in pop music. You know, mm. how often do we hear about a career girl who's inviting some random guy home to her house? Or, you know, maybe it is a Beatle. You know, mm. we don't know the context of, of all the narration. Maybe he, he is being deliberate and saying, you know, this woman took a Beatle home and and yet, you know, she's kind of not really interested <laughs> in him in a particular way but that that was totally unique and different and Paul and John both were great at showing the sort of agency that women could have in all these different ways or you know the the difficult times that they might go through lady madonna is another example oh, cool. of that yeah. yeah so there uh, you know i think the reason why i think i see the beatles versus a lot of other bands as really inviting women in to the space that they're creating through their music is because of lyrics like that, is also sort of the friendly way that they presented themselves to the public, especially early on, and were even quite respectful talking about the quote-unquote Beatlemaniacs, right? Mm -hmm. Even when the media, media figures were not being as nice, the Beatles themselves were always, I think, quite nice to the girls 
um, especially sort of in that public framework, right? But I think even um, the stories that I heard um, from people who had encounters with, say, Paul McCartney early on in Liverpool, um, that showed a real sense of sort of decency and, and respect and kindness as well. What about songs like Run For Your Life? Does that, does, does that stick in your craw a little or do you kind of write that off as just silly album filler that's not meant to be taken too seriously? Well, I think it's um, the exception that proves the rule, you know, and I think John even said he hated that song, oh, yeah. you know, but that it was also based on an earlier Elvis song. Mm-hmm. And... I think any scholar of popular music history realizes that some of the the early rock songs that the Beatles would have been listening to as teenagers, there there are those motifs of, you know, women being bad and, you know, Mm -hmm. my woman's done me wrong and all this sort of stuff. And so I think they were picking up, or at least John was in that song, he's sort of picking up on those earlier motifs and then obviously later realized uh you know why did we record that song why is that on the album but it is the exception that proves the rule because by and large you know the Beatles song catalog I would say is way more girl and woman positive than any other comparable or you know uh, any song catalog of a band producing music at the same time. I obviously in the book compare that to the Rolling Stones catalog and the Stones having more of this aggro aspect to their lyrics towards women. Um, and certainly, I mean, you know, Ray Davies has some quite sensitive, interesting lyrics about women. I think he wrote about women pretty well. But I still think the Beatles shine through as the one rock band of that era and maybe of any era that really tried to step into these different narratives about women and show this kind of spectrum of personalities and not look at women in just one particular way. I always think it's funny that the complete white toast, white bread Cliff Richard wrote Devil Woman. I still think that's hilarious. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. And again, but he's he's also riffing on that, yeah. that really old rock, rock and roll motif that obviously and luckily we don't have to listen to a lot of anymore. But that was certainly something that was at the basis of some, not all, I mean, just some early rock and roll songs. And I think... Um, is his name David S. Stark? I believe that's his name. Let me double check for you. But he wrote a book that you may have seen as well that I think is super fascinating. And it definitely is cited in my book because um, he does a great job at really going even more in depth into the sort of gendered lyrical aspects of what the Beatles are doing. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Stephen D. Stark, Meet the Beatles, A Cultural History of the Band That Shook Youth, Gender, and the World. 
And he talks about how um, basically what I just mentioned, that idea that some of the early rock and roll R&B kind of songs had that motif that was adopted by a lot of 60s rock bands, but especially the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, because their musical palette and their interests are a bit different and become more and more diverse you see less of those kinds of references in their music. Um, well, actually, that, that that reminds me of a point you made about uh, Hamburg and the Reaper Barn. Everyone just assumed it's a bunch of drunk male sailors, like, you know, on shore leave. But in your mm-hmm. book, you, 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 you actually mentioned that. I mean, everyone forgets that Astrid was a massive figure there, but it was, a, you know, I wouldn't say 50-50, but it's a lot more... Uh, of a of a mix than anyone would ever have expected, and that largely influenced the fact that the Beatles had to have a more diverse set list. They 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 couldn't just do long tall Sally and the hippie hippie shake over and over again. They they did throw in things like till there was you and and other and other ballads that would appeal to a wider audience, and that largely influenced their their wider palette. You know, perhaps if they mm-hmm. had just been playing to dirty sweaty drunk men in a cellar for three years, maybe mm-hmm. they, they would have become more like the Stones and not had the same kind of cult- cultural impact. It's a, it's one of those great what-if questions. Um, you, uh, you, you touched on this earlier, and I want to bring it back back around to that. Sure. Uh, Jane Tompkins puts forth that like Elvis had been too sexual and the Beatles were mm-hmm. more sensual, like a boyfriend who's, who's going steady and not rushing into anything. He's not taking you out to make out point and he's Buick or anything like that. But um, Right, right. How important is that idea that the Beatles were not so on-the-nose masculine and instead, as you put more romantically masculine, like a Prince Charming kind of figure? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that was hugely important for getting girls into rock and roll or this new kind of rock music that the Mm -hmm. Beatles created and epitomized really because you know if you're an adolescent girl um teenage girl I mean you know not everyone is the same but I think it could be and Jane Tompkins when she's writing that she's talking about hearing I want to hold your hand when she was already a university student, right? Mm -hmm. Or she was even um, in graduate school, maybe. So she was already in her 20s. So she wasn't a teenager. She wasn't a young girl. But even so, she felt that from that essay that she wrote, she clearly feels invited into this world that's quite sweet and happy and romantic And so definitely, I think that was something that at least some of the female fans really did latch onto and they were drawn to the Beatles for those qualities. So, I mean, I think another book that could be written, for instance, would be The Beatles and Sexuality that could cover Mm -hmm. all, you know, um, sexual orientations, quite honestly. But, um, you know, that the sort of sexual aspect of fandom, I don't really go into in the book. Mm -hmm. And there are several reasons for that. I mean, I guess I didn't want the book to be stereotyped as some sort of Beatles Babylon, but somebody certainly could write that if they wanted to, or of course do a very measured and very considerate academic study of Beatles and sexuality. You know, it doesn't have to be some sort of 
bodice ripper kind of like I said Beatles Babylon book it could be uh, <laughs> a more you know intellectual look at it all I think that would be a fascinating book um, but for me I wanted to I guess I wanted to focus on that sensuality and the the romanticism in the Beatles story because that's something I thought a lot of the books that are written by male authors just either do not want to touch or do not know how to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, again, maybe this is something that at least some male authors, I don't want to assume that all of them would think this, but maybe some would think like, ooh, I just don't want to go there. You know, mm-hmm. that's some, and again, it goes back to the maybe, um, dismissive attitudes of the early female fans as being sort of hysterical and Mm -hmm. unhinged and for them that's sort of associated with those kinds of quote-unquote girly topics but as a woman uh, who doesn't dismiss those sorts of things and know from all the reading I've done and from speaking with fans of different generations that that romantic and sensual aspect of the Beatles is a very important part of the fandom. And why Mm -hmm. shouldn't it be, you know? If part of a female fan's interest, if they're a straight, you know, or bisexual fan, if they're attracted to the Beatles in that way, then what's wrong with that? You know, again, I felt that was something I'm happy to explore in the book. Um, But yeah, I do think the Beatles offered something that felt comfortable for a lot of young women to involve themselves with you know the whole um Beatles fan community the music was just easy to get into and didn't feel threatening I guess that's the bottom line of of what Tompkins is saying there the music didn't feel threatening it felt inviting it's, it's such an interesting dichotomy, and I, I don't know how you would write a book about it, because there is this assumption that if you fancy the artist that you're listening to, that that somehow makes you a lesser fan or a more baseline, I, I don't know, you're not as intellectual about 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 the pursuit. Uh, Chip, be quiet, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's the, the postman's just arrived. The postman always rings twice, if you will. Um, you know what? But yeah, that idea has always been interesting to me because, I mean, for example, I'd never really been into Madonna. And then I watched the video for Papa Don't Preach. And, mm-hmm. it, and it reminds me of when I first saw Kira Knightley when I was 12 years old. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm attracted to this woman right now. And that got me to listen to the True Blue album. And then I just started listening to Madonna and became what? you know, critics would call a legitimate fan because I'm intellectualising and talking about the, the intricacies of the bass lines and, you know, the strength of the right. writing rather than just going, Madonna's pretty. And it's, who is, who is anyone to question anyone's level of fandom or why they're a fan? Because um, everyone gets different things out of different things. I just, I just think it would, it would be interesting to to break down the psychology of that. Unfortunately, the, mm-hmm. the 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 diversity of human neurochemistry is so vast that any basic platitudes don't work at all. Right, but right. I like, I like the idea that you know, perhaps 
well, okay, going going back to my nerdy sub uh, subcultures, there was a bit of a furore on Instagram a few months ago where there are a bunch of uh, female uh, miniatures painters. This is very nerdy stuff. I do I do I do apologize, but um, the ones who have the biggest profiles sadly are the ones who are the most conventionally attractive and that is because mm-hmm. probably a lot of young men will mm-hmm. be like oh it's a, it's a pretty girl who who mm-hmm. paints orcs and space marines how very interesting <laughs> and there was a uh, one of uh, and then a, a male content creator was like that's fine if that's why you subscribe to them that's not they're not detracting from you but it's when it becomes weird and you know, mm-hmm. you, and, and you get comments, and maybe that's the only reason why you're continuing to like them. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the Beatles, I don't think that would be the case at all. Yes, maybe no. maybe a certain percentage of female fans got into them because they were like, "Oh my god, look at John's jawline," and "Oh my god, Paul's little dimples." But I'd find it very hard to believe that anyone could be in the Beatles world and not even accidentally get into the music and the, the quote-unquote proper fandom of it all. It 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 just seems so strange to me that uh, the idea that one fan is more legitimate than, than, than the other. I mean, a lot of it might just be literally down to how one might be able to articulate oneself. I mean, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As, as, sure. as you put in the book, uh, the Beatles being largely working class meant that they were able to be spread to a largely work working class fandom and education then isn't what it was now. And perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, people in the, in the 1960s, men and women alike were just not able to be like, well, blah, 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 blah. This is, this is what I think about, about the fandom. And, mm-hmm. na- and now as things have become more equal and, and gaps have been, been, uh, lesson that you know people are able to be more articulate about about that kind of thing um sure I, yeah um, i don't know what, i don't know what point i'm making i don't i don't know what question on my list i worked towards <laughs> there i was i was i was literally well, just talking about there. why um i think you were making the point about that we can't really judge can we why fans are drawn mm-hmm. to the performers or, you know, in your case, you were making the example of Instagram influencers or uh, online celebrities, right? Mm -hmm. That sometimes it's difficult to articulate why you're drawn to certain people, right? Mm -hmm. And it could be numerous levels of attraction, I think. And what came through for me, with the research I did um, and the women I interviewed, especially, but even you know the women's stories that I sourced from other primary and secondary sources, the music was always central mm-hmm. to the fascination. It couldn't really happen without the music being so good. Mm-hmm. The Beatles' music was just so, so good, and it was really different at that time. And that was the main reason that these girls got into the Beatles. If the music hadn't been as good, I don't think we would have seen that level of intensity in terms of a reaction to them. Mm -hmm. So the music always had to be great. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the phenomenon of the Beatles that we had, nor would we have this continuing 
legacy. I mean, the the music is numero uno in this whole history, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we're then drawn to the different personalities for various reasons, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter what attracts you to them, really. And I guess with my book, I just wanted to make the point that, yes, the music, but yes, also these other things were important to young female fans' connection with the Beatles and their experience of the band. And Mm -hmm. let's just respect and honor that as part of their reality in terms of their fandom. Couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, especially like in terms of like dating, like the reason I present myself as a kind of homeless hobo figure is that I know that if anyone ever sticks around, it's because they're they like me as a person, not this horrendous visage that I that that I present to them. Um, <laughs> not horrendous, um, not horrendous at all. No. Um, Let's let's move on slightly. Let's let's talk about those early Cavern fans. Um, do you, uh, it, the, 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 there is this? I don't know how erroneous it might be. The idea that the original fans were perhaps a bit resentful of the presentation of of Beatlemania. Do you mm. think the, the 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 early Cavern fans at least saw themselves as? truer fans especially during the height of Beatlemania or was some of that just resentment of the fact that they'd lost the Beatles to the world you know I think that second reason is probably closer to what was going on I mean aspects of being annoyed with the way that those female fans were being presented in the media I'm sure rubbed some of those girls the wrong way because by all accounts, there wasn't screaming going on in the cavern or most of those shows Mm -hmm. in Liverpool, right? So it was something that was so different that when Beatlemania erupted in Britain in 63 and then globally in 64, I think it was kind of unbelievable to everyone, but especially those early fans at the Cavern who had just so casually interacted with them in the sort of everyday kind of way. And they were people you would see around town. They were guys that you would see at the record store and talk to them, you know, or you would just see them walking through, you know, the shops in central Liverpool, you know. So I think there was a lot of sadness mm-hmm. uh, and a kind of mourning, if you like, that the Beatles were no longer this local approachable band. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think a lot of people were very happy for their success, but there was that sense that the Beatles no longer just belonged to that community in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably more to the truth of why there was a maybe some annoyance around the way the Beatles fans were presented via Beatlemania because it was so different from their experience. The Beatles were not these, uh, pardon me, these distant figures who were at a state or on a stage miles away 
uh, that you, you know, couldn't talk to, that you couldn't shake their hand, you couldn't hug them, you know, they were, that was not the experience that the Liverpudlians had. They were able to interact with them like the normal people they were. And um, yeah, there was a sense of sadness, I think. And there, there are several documentary clips. I think there's even a little clip of that in the Beatles anthology where mm-hmm. they show a young woman being interviewed about that very thing. Mm-hmm. We can't deny the impact that uh, screenwriter Alan Owen and director Richard Lester had on this perception of the female fan. That image of the four mm-hmm. lads running away <laughs> from a scream, a, a, a horde of screaming women is yeah. one of the most iconic, powerful, resonant images of the entire 20th century. It's still being felt mm. today in the way that both bands and boy bands are are, are presented in the media. I would mm-hmm. love I would love to see if there's any evidence at all that mm-hmm. screaming fans, chasing people, being hysterical, people fainting, even existed largely, uh, maybe at least worldwide, before that film. Because the, the film almost presents it that this is how you should behave around the Beatles, even subconsciously. Mm. And then that, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's like in the, in, in, in the middle ages when there was the, there was that dance mania and some people would just start dancing in the village and then everyone in the village would dance until, until they all collapse. You know, there is a certain, uh, patho- like, you know, um, wider social pathology perhaps at play here that we haven't even, begun to pick up upon you know uh, mm, say yeah. say if there's a large crowd uh you know if someone runs everyone runs you know if and mm-hmm. you might you, you might have just had one percent of the entire fandom who were screaming hysterically but if you're not screaming even more hysterically then your screams not being, even going to be heard so it could just be this compounding thing you know i mean yeah, like what? What do you think of the impact of something like a hard day's night on the fandom as as a whole? Because that's also one of the first marketable things that can be shipped to to a foreign foreign territories as well. Surely, right? I mean, I think about the woman who I interviewed, who's Australian but grew up mainly in Fiji. Yes, and I that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes me think of that story because the Beatles obviously never played a concert there. Mm -hmm. And so for her, it was this huge, exciting opportunity to connect more with Beatles culture and understand what Beatlemania really was when A Hard Day's Night came and played at her local movie theater. And she would just go see it with her sister on repeat. They would go back and go back and spend all their allowance to go see the film. And so for her, those images of Hard Day's Night were influential because she didn't really have access to a lot of, say, teen magazines or things that friends and relatives, say, in Sydney and fans in other parts of the world would have. So for her, that was an image where I'm sure she thought, aha, okay, so that's how the girls behave, you know, Mm -hmm. around the Beatles. That's the kind of response that they get. This is truly what Beatlemania is. 
But I think those things were already happening uh, by late 1963 in the UK. And certainly that was happening in the States and in Australia when the Beatles came here in 64, in June 64. So I, it wasn't manufactured. I don't think it was manufactured. I mean, there are some stories that talk about teenagers being given Beatles merchandise and maybe being paid. I can't remember if that oh, was I part wanted, of the equation. I wanted to ask you about with, that. That's so with, um, yeah. yeah, with um, the Beatles' arrival at JFK in mm-hmm. early February 64 to come and play the Ed Sullivan show and mm-hmm. do a concert in Washington, D.C., etc., which launches Beatlemania in the States and then propels their international fandom uh, and international success. There are some stories that I've read and maybe a couple academic articles, at least one, that suggests that this happened. But uh, that's sort of a conflicted narrative. You know, I don't know. Maybe that was true. I don't know that it's fully confirmed. Um, I I would think that there was already a lot of buzz around the Beatles by mm-hmm. late 1963. And people, young people were really anticipating them. Certainly there were some young people who didn't know about them really until they saw the Ed Sullivan show mm-hmm. appearance. But for instance, some of the women I interviewed were already getting information, for instance, from pen pals in the UK who would send little clippings about the Beatles or someone would be gifted a Beatles album or someone just stumbled across one of the um, early pressings of Meet the Beatles in the States. So things were already kind of rolling by December uh, 63, January 64, So I do think what Alan Owen wrote and what's captured on film in A Hard Day's Night does reflect the reality of early Beatlemania. Hmm. Just going back to that marketing thing, I can't help but think of Mad Men. There's a scene where they they, they, they need to sell these pork roasts, so they pay two uh-huh. women to fight over a pork roast in front of everyone in a supermarket, which creates a scene, <laughs> and then that goes out in the media And, I mean, the more cynical people out there could totally perceive that. You know, Brian Epstein was uh, not so much a musical genius, but he was a very shrewd businessman in in certain Mm -hmm. areas. And the idea that, yeah, maybe you you throw a few dollars at a few radio DJs in the States to start playing the songs. You give a few key figures in, 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 in team culture, a bit, a bit of Beatles merch. That would totally make sense to me. I would love to read those articles. Actually, I will talk to you after. Yes. Um, yes. I would, we I would will debrief. Like yeah. That yeah. sounds, in, that sounds incredibly interesting because, <laughs> um, but you know, then again, you've also got those other huge factors that have come out in like recent years, you know, like, the death of Kennedy could like be seen as the real springboard to, you know, right, uh, right. You know, creating that, that youth culture vacuum in the States that the Beatles effortlessly mm-hmm. filled, you know, Oh my mm-hmm. God. Stay focused, Sam, stay focused. Do not. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess a, a lot, a lot, a lot of that though, uh, just, just going back to cynicism, uh, the idea that the Beatles were just so 
naturally marketable, but not through a, a kind of um, pre preempted sense. Like they were just interactive with their fans early on. They were kind. They were witty. It wasn't a generated thing like say with the Sex Pistols, where they were just like, okay, we 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 need a band to fill this niche. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it all just seemed I mean, it's it's all part of the the right place at the right time that the Beatles always is is uh, a part of um yeah you know just they 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 were so naturally easily sellable to ever to it to, to, to everyone that that uh to, that totally does make sense um you also talk about Liverpool and the fact that they're Liverpudlian uh, being a very important uh, important part of of their upbringing and the way they interacted with fans, and I guess you, you don't outright state this in the book, but the implication is that the, the familial, close knit, coastal aspect of Liverpool uh, and the matriarchal hierarchy of it being a port town uh, is is very important in just their their outlook on women. Would 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 you agree with that interpretation? I might do, do oh, I yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, you're you're reading that correctly in terms of Yay! how I put that together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good interpretation of what I wrote. Yeah, definitely the matriarchal aspect of Liverpool is very important. And we talked about that a little bit earlier with the influence of the mothers and aunties and so on. So I think that can't be written out of this women's history of the Beatles, it's a really important factor in in exploring the importance of those early pre-fame years Mm -hmm. of the Beatles. And so that's why I did give it a good amount of attention in the book because that's, yeah, that's an important piece of the puzzle really. Um, you you actually spoke about geography a lot more than I than I suspected going in. Um, there is the section titled "There She Goes: The Geographic Freedoms of Beatles Fandom," and I really enjoyed the idea of how women being faced with the notion of the city or the inner city mm-hmm. being this dangerous male dominated place, and how the only way to actually change that was to actually just get women to go there in the first place and. The, through osmosis, make it less male-dominated and therefore make it less, at least perceived to be less dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, To to a certain level, though, especially initially, a lot of these young women had to be rather brave, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Well, I think all teenage girls are brave, really, when it comes to things like this, to the first few times going out, especially if you grow up, in a city or in the suburbs and you want to go into the city and Mm -hmm. take part of nightlife, go see concerts, go to clubs. I mean, I think all young women are brave because they're being told, especially um, by their parents, the people who love and care for them, that it could be a dangerous situation, right? Mm -hmm. For a whole host of reasons. And this is why I think teenage girls going out into the city in the early 60s when it was less acceptable or less commonplace, let's say, had eyes in the 
backs of their heads. You know, there was this sense that you had to just be really careful, but there was also the thrill of being adventurous and knowing that at the end of, you know, the long bus rides to get into the city or the long walks that you would be rewarded with seeing the Beatles and seeing your friends, you know, to pal around with at the concerts and to shout out song requests and things like that. So the Beatles and the whole Mersey Beat scene was just a catalyst for young women who wanted to take part in those kinds of adult pleasures of adult, or sorry, adult pleasures of the city, right? Mm -hmm. Going to clubs, going to see concerts. And of course, the Beatles played all those lunchtime gigs at the cavern. So, you know, during the day probably felt safer to go mm -hmm. than roaming around the city at night as well, where a lot of these girls' uh, parents would be more concerned, right? But they still did it. And a few of the women I talked to said, you know, that was part of the fun of being a Beatles fan in, say, 1961, 1962, that you would travel kind of all across the Merseyside region, potentially, mm -hmm. depending where the Beatles were playing, and you would kind of follow along wherever they happened to be uh, playing a show. So that was part of the adventure and the fun that it got young women uh, out of their sort of neighborhoods and out of the house. And it was something they could do together also, mm -hmm. you know, either meeting their friends at the concert venue or going to the shows together if they lived in the same neighborhood. So, yeah, that was something that was really fascinating for me to learn more about and do that research around the norms of young women going out and about in the city in the early 60s, what that would have been like as compared to what it's like today. What I also liked in that section was the idea that it also reinforced the independence of, say, working women who might have a lunch break for an hour and they might just pop down to the cavern for half an hour and see the Beatles. And that's just an extension of their social mo uh, mobility and freedom. Uh, I'm not going to use mobility as a pun there, but I could, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll resist. Let's, let's move on to the elephant in the room, the devil herself, the woman who broke up the Beatles, Yoko Ono herself. Um, do you think as a society, as a fandom, as a group of academics, quasi-academics and casuals that were past the the Yoko broke up the band thing, is is that, I mean, that, that's not going to be perpetuated in any book moving forward, I don't think, do you? Well, every time I think that... We're past There's it. No, Someone well, says every, it. <laughs> every time I think that nobody holds that view of Yoko anymore because it just doesn't, you know, it just seems so long ago that those kind of vitriolic attitudes were really being held towards Yoko and accusing Yoko of this, that, and the other, and especially for breaking up the Beatles. Every time I think those attitudes are long gone, I will come across something a, online. A Facebook post. It's always Facebook in comments. It's, uh, mm. I'll, see, I'll see comments on social media that uh, from people who still very much have a beef with Yoko and are not afraid to share that or those opinions. 
And it is surprising to me, um, but some people really hold on to that, that anger, those negative attitudes towards her, um, assuming that she was, you know, the worst of the worst. And the good thing is, though, that I think there are many people in Yoko's corner now as compared to 1970s, you know, in the early 70s. I think a lot of people do really champion her as an artist, as somebody separate uh, from the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And there's some books that have come out recently that are totally focused on Yoko. So that's great to see. And of course, in my book, I was really trying to, to, you know, to account for those narratives around her and really question and overturn and really subvert those um, those negative mm-hmm. narratives. And certainly some of the women I interviewed were not huge fans of Yoko, mm-hmm. but there were some that really thought she was great. So, the, you know, within Beatles fan culture and whether you're talking to male or female fans, there's still going to be a diversity of perspectives. But I do think that there are more people speaking positively about Yoko than was true around the time of the Beatles breakup and, you know, sort of the decade thereafter. She's a fantastic example of a phrase called intersectionality as well, because not only is she a woman, she's an artist. She's, Mm -hmm. she was also born from, not a silver spoon because the family lost all of it, but she was born mm. from, a, from a quite well-to-do cultured existence. She is not yes. white. Uh, right. There are so many things together that people might not even consciously be aware of. And it's it's so easy to, to uh, jump on her. And I think so much of it comes down to individuals' perceptions of women, you know, like, you know, like the idea of the man cave or something like that. Like, this is where I don't want my wife to be. This is my special my my special place away from women and it's like i remember mentioning the idea of of a, a man cave to a, a previous part partner of mine and um she she was a very illuminating figure in terms of bringing me up to speed as it were i think when i was like 18 i said i said to her that women dress for men and she dressed me down for about a year for that comment. <laughs> um, yeah, and I I, 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 I wretch in the stomach for thinking that I thought that way. But like you know, the idea that women are meant to be in a separate space from men is, I think the the main idea. Like the idea that there might be loads of men in bands and they don't want their wives to bother them, you mm. know? and that down to them as an individual. Like, what is it that is so reactionary in men when they read about the story that they go no paul was right she shouldn't have been there she was interfering <laughs> um i mean i mean you i mean they, they don't even mention it in the peter jackson documentary which might be whitewashing yoko's input in the let it be sessions somewhat like you know they don't show her with the mic or anything like that which you know that's fine yoko's still still alive sean and and uh, uh, was still very involved in the making of the film and he was a bit of an intermediary for her and Peter Jackson. But there's just such a weird idea that 
Yoko should not have been there. Like, what you mean? This woman who's just had a miscarriage shouldn't be around her her partner. Mm. Like, mm. I, is no one going to talk about that? I mean, yeah. There's also the idea that John might have beat her to the point where she had a miscarriage, but we're not going to go into that. We're not going to go into that now. But you know, it's it it's so strange to me that people are assuming. Yeah, there was like the no wives, no girlfriends clause in the early days. But that's the those are the platitudes of of four young men born in the in the mid to late 40s. You know, they are maturing, they're getting older, they're being exposed to more ideas. I love that idea that I think it might have been John. He may have said it offhand, like uh, not not only should there have been a band called the Beatles Wives, but um, an idea that a future version of the Beatles would have just had Linda and Yoko. Mm. I, I don't want to say supporting roles because that sounds a bit downplay, but, you know, just the idea that, yeah, maybe the future of Beatles harmonies would have been a six-part harmony where all the wives were there as well. Maybe, mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe Linda would have played some adequate keyboards on 70s Beatles records, you know? Uh, I mean... Anyone who's actually dived into Yoko's discography with John will quickly find out that in a lot of cases, some of her songs are maybe not as lyrical or as melodic as John's, but they're far more interesting, especially when John kind of peters out in the in in the 70s, in the mid-70s. Yoko's actually making mm. the, the more dynamic and engaging material. So who's to say that yeah. the Beatles could not have evolved something a bit more accommodating for the wives and girlfriends um mm-hmm. again again so much of that is just down to the cultural perceptions of wives and girlfriends as well i mean literally here in 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 the uk um footballers have wags which is wives and girlfriends and it and it's so derogatory and yeah maybe mm. that's maybe that's down to the top people that play football and the type of women that that they pursue but it's I mean, just just again, me knowing the you know when I when I was at school, so many of the best musicians and singers and artists and creative minds were all the girls in the year. And yeah, I found that incredibly intimidating. And perhaps a mind less empathetic might lash out instead of trying to accommodate. You know, I do. I I always try and empathise with the bad guys in a in a story. <laughs> Um, you know, as long as they're not committing genocide, I do try and empathise with the bad guy in, in 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 any narrative. And it seems to me that a lot of the women hate in the Beatles fandom might just come down to the fact that, you know, men don't break other men's hearts. It might literally just come down to all of that, you know, not to be too reductionist or anything, but. No, sure. I mean, I guess, you know, they did form this band and they had this tight-knit group where um, they were used to just being together and not having anyone else in the studio, of course. But times change, people change. And Mm -hmm. Paul and Ringo have both talked about it. And again, I think it's in the anthology book maybe more so than the documentary film. Mm -hmm. But um, they talk about, especially Paul says, you know, well, it's sort of like 
army buddies, mm-hmm. you know, going off and getting married. And so the dynamic is just going to be different. And, and change is uncomfortable for most people most of the time. You know, when you're used to doing things a certain way, it's it can be really jarring to have things suddenly um, shift due to new people coming in to um, the group dynamic, for example. So there's a part of me that certainly understands that sort of tension in the recording studio when um, Yoko and Linda would have been starting to show up. But things really do change, don't they, as we go into, say, the punk and post-punk era, but even in the 70s with, say, Fleetwood Mac, right? You see, mm-hmm. you suddenly see people who are partnered up romantically who are in bands together, and that just becomes the kind of a normal variation of a rock band. Mm-hmm. But at that time, when the Beatles are breaking up and Paul is deciding to make music with Linda, John is doing that with Yoko, that was really something that nobody had seen before. And it Mm -hmm. seemed kind of shocking and and weird to these sort of maybe more conservative um, rock fans, Mm -hmm. you know, who just wanted things to just be the way they had always been. And they didn't want to see a Beatle making music with his wife, you know, and these, uh, they, they, were, they were thinking, why do I want to see this? But now yeah. it's just so much of a normal part of, of rock music, especially when I think of indie rock, mm-hmm. um, not so much the mainstream, but always sort of the alternative mm-hmm. bands. That's just kind of a normal variation on the theme to have mm-hmm. those kinds of bands that are made up of boyfriends and girlfriends and so on. Of course, these these conservative people. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying politically conservative, but uh, culturally conservative people who would, yeah, would right. um, resist the idea of the, the Beatles going off with wives and girlfriends are also the same people who do not want to ever entertain the idea that John and Paul could have been romantically connected at all either. So they just they they want this very narrow perception of what the Beatles are and what they could be and. Oh, it's very boring in 2022. It really is getting quite tiresome at this point. Um, you know, again, we were never there. We don't, we'll never be on the inside. We can only guess and suppose from what the Beatles actually told us. I mean, uh, going, going back to that quote about, you know, them going off to war and things changing. My best friend has recently got a partner. They've been together for about a year now. And rather than letting the mistakes of the Beatles colour my life, I did just, I did confess to her, I was like, you know, I do find you to be a threat. You are taking my boy away from me, you know, especially if you take him off to another town miles away. I don't particularly do well with long distance travel. And we actually use that as a moment to bond together because it's more like, it's not you're taking him off. We both love this guy so much that that's actually a connecting point for you and me to actually become closer together and you know that's something that I, I, I always try and consciously do like if I was ever in a band and someone had an expressive artist join the group and start talking I'd be like right let's just let this happen because we are not doing what those lads did you know I mean mm. so so much of the Beatles story could have been solved with a bit of postmodern meta-analysis and just everyone saying what they actually felt at the time um <laughs> 
you know, if I if, if everyone just went, look, man, I, I actually quite love you, and uh, don't uh, you know, I wish I could see you more. Well, I'm sorry, Paul. I, I love you too, and I wish I could see you more. If they had just said that, we'd still well, we would have had at least ten albums of you know decreasing quality, which you know probably would have ruined the Beatles' narrative actually. So it's probably a good thing that they were as uptight and socially stunted as they were. Um, you know what? Before I go off into fifty more tangents, let's let's get <laughs> down to what I always find to be the most interesting part of these episodes, especially as someone who always entertains the idea of writing a book is how the book came to be. When did, sure. you, when did you first have the idea to write the book? How long did it take before you started writing the book? Yes. What was, what was the process of writing it like? And finally, um, when did you know it was done? Okay. Well, it's interesting because it was quite a long process, really. I mean, I had entertained the idea of someday writing a book about the Beatles as early as 2005. Mm -hmm. My sister and I became Beatles fans together growing up, and it was a conversation that we had at her house when I was visiting from my PhD studies. Of course, since I was writing my PhD thesis at that time, there was no way I was going to have time to also write a book about the Beatles. I was just <laughs> trying to, I mean, maybe some other people can do that sort of juggling, but I certainly couldn't at that point. So it was discussed. And then when I moved here and started my job here in Brisbane at the university, my sister said, hey, you know, I think we initially I think she wanted to co-write something with me because she's a writer also but then at some point she just said to me and I think it may have been around 2012 or 2013 she said I think you should really think about that idea that you had about women and the Beatles or something like that because that was one of the ideas that we had talked about back in 2005 and so in 2013, I made an outline, which I recently found because it was attached wow. to an old email address because I had emailed the outline to her to check it out and give me some feedback. And interestingly, it is very similar to what ended up being the organization of the book and the topics in the book. But I had totally lost that um, for years. And so when I was writing up the proposal for the book, I didn't have that to look at. So I was just remembering sort of the key ideas that I wanted to cover. But the research for the book in earnest started in 2016 with a trip to London and Liverpool. And I conducted my first interviews. I went to the British Library and looked at all of uh, the Beatles book monthly. I looked at as much information that I could. I went to the Liverpool Public Library and looked at some of their uh, archives that they had for you know, local documents related to the Beatles and so on. And that's when it really kicked off. I ended up taking a bit of a break from the project for about a year or so after that. And then I really began in earnest again with both interviews and research in 2018. I started writing 
the book in early 2019. I think around February 2019 is when I wrote the first chapter and started on the next chapter uh, draft. And then I finished it and had to submit it to Bloomsbury, my publishers, uh, around the 1st of July 2020. So it was about a year and a half-ish that it took to actually write the book um, and complete it. So yeah, that, so it's a bit of a long and winding road to get there, but I eventually got there. And I love doing research. And of course, I love the Beatles so much, not just as a scholar, but as a fan. So it was an incredibly lovely and happy period to just be doing those interviews and um, just being in a Beatles bubble all the time was great for that, that period of time. At what point did you know that it, I'm not, I'm not saying the book is centered around, but it prominently features those interviews and those primary sources. Was there ever a, like, was there ever a point where you're like, this is mostly going to be a distant, cold, just reading books and newspaper articles kind of work? Or was that always the goal? right from the get-go what do you mean sorry so so, so, like, so let, i'm gonna rephrase that and edit in again um, <laughs> was it always the intention that that the book was gonna largely focus on first-hand accounts of of fandom or was there ever a point where it was going to be a little more distant no i always wanted those first-hand accounts i really wanted women's voices to be at the forefront literally their voices mm -hmm. telling these stories about how the beatles had made such a big impact on their lives and so from from the very beginning of formulating the way the research was going to go uh, the method if you will to mm -hmm. the book it was always going to feature narratives that were coming out of interviews. But I knew that, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to interview hundreds and hundreds of people within the time frame that I had to finish the book or to do the research and write it. So I knew that some of the information would come from things I was reading, you know, fan magazines, teen magazines, mm -hmm. um, memoirs, and some other secondary sources. So as you could see with the way I wrote the introduction to the book, I'm saying, yes, you know, the voices of these women I interviewed are primary to the whole book, but it is also contextualized or enriched by these other sources that I looked at. For instance, um, the Beatles book Monthly was just amazing to read through especially the letters that came in written by mostly female fans and just the diversity of views that came across and the things that they were noticing about the fandom in the early days was just incredible so that was such an amazing resource to be able to very carefully read all those letters and have that again, sort of um, complement mm -hmm. the interviews that I was able to do with first-generation fans. Um, how, how, how did you come about 
uh, organizing such a plethora of interviews you know like you, it's basically um, it's 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 lewison-esque in its scale really the 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 idea that you've got to leave your leave the country head all the way over here and then interview like you say possibly hundreds of people how do you even go about organizing that what what are the nitty-gritty mechanics of setting that up is it is, is it a bunch of he said she said do you put an ad out in the local paper how do you, how do you do that there were there were different ways that i circulated a call for interviews through different networks um professionally and personally and um I know that before I went to Liverpool, I contacted, uh, pardon me, I contacted someone I knew at one of the universities there and she was able to circulate the call for interviews through Liverpool. And that's how I got um, a couple of interviews there that were really amazing um, that are featured in the book as well. Sometimes it was, you know, I, I'm not a very socially, um, no, how should I put it? Uh, I'm not a social scientist. I mean, I am in sociology at the Mm -hmm. university that I'm at here in Australia, but I'm a cultural sociologist. And I was also trained by somebody who was more of a media historian who Mm -hmm. really focused on oral history testimony. And so my, my method is a bit more fluid, I would say, in terms of how I how I approach gathering inter- possible interviewees together. It's it's um, not as strictly methodical as maybe some people are. Mm-hmm. You know, I might have a conversation with somebody about the project I'm working on and they'll say, oh, you should interview so-and-so, mm-hmm. you know, so I'll put you in touch with them or I'll ask if they want to be part of the project you know, that sort of thing. Or I'd put a call out on social media and a bunch of people would respond, but then they would also put me in touch with friends of theirs who really wanted to be a part of the project, which is, you know, that's a bona fide methodology called the snowballing sampling or snowballing Mm -hmm. technique. So that's not unheard of. Obviously, that's something that a lot of um, academics use when they're doing kind of ethnographic research. So that wasn't really out of the box per se. But honestly, Sam, being that a lot of those interviews and setting up those interviews were a while ago now, it's a bit of a blur. <laughs> Just all sort of came together the way it was meant to come together. Um, I'm really grateful to all the women who wanted to be a part of it. And I'm grateful to those also who did refer me to other women who wanted to tell their stories. So it all worked out, but honestly, it was, you know, it was a bit of a frenzy because there's so many things that you're doing when you're doing research for a big project like this, Mm -hmm. you are arranging interviews, you're conducting the interviews, you're going to a lot of libraries, you're going through digital library catalogs, you know, through the university to find more primary sources and so on. Um, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. But it is it is a huge undertaking. And sometimes I wonder how, you know, I managed to pull it all together. 
but the important thing is that I did at the end. You did. And you know what? I, th- I don't think there could be a possible better point to end this because you did do it. It's an incredible book. You know, there was a certain, you know, even I was like, okay, let's, I wonder, I wonder how engaged I'm going to be with this. I always, I, I always have a certain, um, you know, reluctance whenever there's an, an, an more academic book. Like, you know, me, I prefer a nice, a nice picture book that says, this is Paul in 69, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was, you know, certainly reluctant to, you know, see how much I was going to engage with it. And about 10 pages, in, I was like, yeah, I'm with this now. I totally get what this, what, 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 what this book is going for. I'm, I'm totally on board with the story and this narrative. Let's see where it goes. I, I really enjoyed reading it. As my fans know, I find it incredibly hard to sink my teeth into even a even a fiction book. You know, I've been reading the first Game of Thrones novel for about 70 years now. I'll probably finish it in the next what, 140. I'm really, I'm really bad with reading books. But the fact that I read as much of your book as I did in the amount of time that I have is the best compliment I could possibly give it. I give Aww. it my no, I honestly I give it my full rec- rec- recommendation, not just because you're here on the show show but again because I really did enjoy it and enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would which is the point I would make if anyone out there male or female but particularly male if you are if, if you are identify as a man and you want to learn more about this perspective then I highly would suggest you go out and grab yourselves a copy is it out now when's when, when when's it coming out what's the uh... oh yeah it's out um the paperback came out at the end of February this year the hardcover had been been out since February last year but with most academic books the hardcover um, costs are quite high so I'm really glad the paperback is out now and it's very accessible Mm -hmm. and it's available you know anywhere that you would normally buy books so thank you so much for your kind endorsement to Sam I'm really glad that you enjoyed it I'm happy to hear that is it available digitally? Is there an audiobook version as well? Oh, that's a good idea. No, there isn't an audiobook yet, but um, it, there is an e-copy of the book that's available. So for Kindle and people who enjoy reading books that way, yes, there is a version of that as well. Make sure a man doesn't read the book, though. I think that would take away from the power of the book somewhat. Do it yourself. I I always love it when authors read their own books for audiobooks. I think I think you do a swell job. But um, oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I want to I want to end on a quote from David Brent from the uh, the UK version of The Office. How can I hate women? My mum's one. And there we are, folks. <laughs> I have been having an incredible, an incredible conversation with Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, whose book, A Women's History of the Beatles, is out now. Go and check out the hard copy, the paperback copy, and the ebook that you can get online. We've just had an incredible conversation. I stayed a lot more on topic than I thought I ever would. I've learned, <laughs> I've learned so much. I've had so much fun. Thank you for coming on, Christine. This has been absolutely fantastic. Oh, I had a really fun time too, Sam. Thanks so much for inviting me on. No, the pleasure is all mine. Folks, there will be links for the book down below. Thank you so much for listening. It's been the episode of Paul or Nothing. I'm sure Danny Lane is playing us out already. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry, Krishna, no more autographs. Bye.
Yeah. 